thank you, Luke. And thank you, Jerry, for sharing for us this morning. Well, good morning. and Welcome to the Family Bible Hour once again. Matt and I have exchanged our speaking dates, so I will be taking his spot this morning, and he will be speaking next week instead, Lord willing. Each Sunday here at Faith, we are reminded at the Lord's table of the awful price that was paid for our sins in order to redeem our souls. And following the Lord's Supper, we are blessed with excellent ministry from the Word of God. It is very rare today to hear the gospel preached and the Word of God systematically expounded as it is here week after week. But if we are to have a heart for the lost, then we must never forget, even for a moment, that we have been bought with a tremendous price. And that without the cross and the shed blood of Jesus Christ, there is absolutely no hope of salvation for mankind. And yet, tragically, much of the world has been deceived into thinking that there are many ways to salvation. I therefore have selected as my main text for this morning, 2 John, verses 1 to 13, and entitled my message, The Spirit of the Antichrist. And once again, thank you, Luke, for reading that passage for us. Uh, I've had Luke read these passages before my messages for quite some time now. It not only shortens my message, but at the same time, I spot things at the last minute when he's reading that I may have overlooked. So I continue doing that because it's both a blessing to me as well. But as always, before we begin, let's turn to the Lord in prayer first. Father, we are so delighted to be here again this morning. And we are delighted to know beyond a shadow of a doubt that this book which we hold in our hands this morning is the very word of God that thou hast promised to preserve every jot and tittle of it. And so as we open our text this morning, we pray that the Spirit of God will speak to us, will open our understanding as to the text before us, and to reveal once again what thy will is for each one of us this morning and that the Spirit of God may also give us the desire to obey what we learn here this morning for we ask it all in his name and for his sake amen as we begin the first three verses of this epistle we see the Apostles address to the elect lady and are struck by its gentleness and its compassion. Remember that it was written by the aging Apostle John somewhere around 90 AD. This was the beloved disciple of Jesus, of whom we could say held the privileged position at the Savior's bosom. It was John whom the scriptures say in John 13, 23, when the Lord was betrayed, now there was leaning on Jesus' bosom one of his disciples whom Jesus loved. 
Then later on, we see him standing at the cross, the only disciple mentioned as being there. And we witness the tremendous charge given to him when the Savior in his dying moments cried out to him in John 19, 27, Behold thy mother. And from that hour, that disciple took her onto his own home. Just think, the Savior of all mankind chose John to take care of his earthly mother, Mary. What a privilege, but also what a frightening responsibility came with it. John, perhaps of all the Lord's disciples, knew the love of God most intimately and was therefore able to demonstrate it so graciously to others. Is it any wonder that John was the one who penned those precious truths which so clearly demonstrate what godly love entails? 1 John 5, 1-3 Whosoever believeth that Jesus is the Christ is born of God, and every one that loveth him that begat loveth him also that is begotten of him. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and keep his commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not grievous. This is the same John who put to ink the book of the Revelation, in which the Apostle John presents before us the things to come, and the revelation of the Lord of glory in all his splendor. Can you imagine the impact that the elect lady must have felt to have personally received this epistle directly from the last living apostle? And who was this elect lady and her children? The scriptures seem to be silent on this dear saint's identity, but this we do know, that whoever she was, she knew the apostle well. He was her brother in Christ, and perhaps he may have been the one who led her to the Savior. The apostle knew her and about her and her children, and may have frequently corresponded with her. But since he was not able to write everything down in this letter, he promised that he would personally come to see her and to speak with her face to face, so that their joy may be full. Verse 12. And the reason why he wrote this letter to her in the first place, I believe, was to expressly answer a question that she may have written to him about in verse 10. And her question may have been something like this. <coughs> to what extent should Christians show their acceptance to those who claim to be ministers of Christ, but have not the doctrine of Christ? That may have been the essence of her question. And I'm sure all of us, at one time or another, have asked ourselves a similar question. Just what is our obligation to those who may come to our home and have not the doctrine of Christ? But first, let's go back to his address in verse 1. Notice, please. He does not use his title of apostle but rather elder, indicating his chosen service to the flock, which was to feed the flock, lead the flock, and to protect the flock. 
what an important mission has been given to all true elders. Oh, if only all who take this office would just realize how serious this work is and how terribly accountable all elders will be when they stand before the Lord on that day of judgment before Christ. The Apostle John writes to her, Whom I love in truth, and not I only, but also all they that have known the truth, for the truth's sake which dwelleth in us and shall be with us forever. Truth and love are inseparable in the kingdom of heaven. God cannot and will not compromise truth at the expense of his love. Such confusion we face in the Christian walk and worship when we misunderstand this point. The Savior himself emphasized in John 14, 15, If ye love me, keep my commandments. And then in John 14, 23, If a man love me, he will keep my words, and my Father will love him, and we will come on to him and make our abode with him. And then further down, or previous to that, John 14, 21, He that hath my commandments and keepeth them, he it is that loveth me, and he that loveth me shall be loved of my Father, and I will love him, and will manifest myself to him. The test of loving the Savior is obedience. That's from the Savior's own words. I often have heard in many circles, do you love the Lord? Oh yes, I love the Lord. Do you keep his commandments? Well, sometimes. But what does that say? Did the Father of the Lord Jesus Christ love the elect lady and her children? Of course he did. For here was a saint who loved the truth because it dwelt within her in the person of Christ. Grace be to you, continues the Apostle John. Mercy and peace from God the Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of the Father, in truth and in love. Verse 3. Grace, mercy, and peace. What lovely words of greetings to the saints of God. Grace speaks to us of that unmerited favor that God bestows upon all of his saints when they come to the cross of Calvary to deal with the sin question once and for all. And then he continues to shed that grace upon us to enable us to live each day through difficulties of life and in newness of life. But not only that, he gives mercy to all who receive his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and trust in him for their salvation. And mercy is the withholding of what we as sinners rightly deserve in the way of judgment and punishment for sin. But God, who is holy, righteous, and just, cannot tolerate sin, but must, because of the cross of Calvary, where his own beloved Son pour our punishment for our sins, God is able to shed upon the forgiven sinner more blessings than he could ever deserve. But then there is also peace. Peace is part and parcel of this grace. Because the sin question has now been permanently settled, there is peace. Peace between God and sinful man. 
The sinner has been reconciled to God, never again to be separated by sin from his God as before. And so the reconciled sinner can now enjoy peace with God and the peace of God, which sees him or her through all of those terrible trials and tribulations that each one of us may face someday. And thus in all forgiven sinners become saints of God, accepted in the beloved, precious in the sight of God. Grace, mercy, and peace are all sent from God, but always in perfect unity or union with his truth and his love. See how often John writes truth and love in this tiny epistle. Truth is indispensable when dealing with the doctrine of Christ. Love is indispensable when applying this truth to life. Truth lights our way before us, while love keeps us united to the Savior and is the comforting medication when we are persecuted, afflicted, or chastised by the Lord. When God speaks, he always speaks the truth in love. When he warns his people of a coming wrath or judgment, he never exaggerates or twists his words or leaves out the unpleasant parts, but he speaks them truthfully to all who will hear because he loves those whom he forewarns. What a lovely address to the elect lady and her children. Next we come to verse 4. I rejoice greatly that I found of thy children walking in truth as we have received the commandment from the Father. This brings us to the second point in our message for this morning, which I've entitled The Apostles' Appreciation. And what an appreciation it is. Nothing brings as much joy and satisfaction to the heart and soul of an elder as knowing that those over whom he has labored and shepherded are still walking in truth. So many believers tend to dry up, wither away, and stagnate once the shepherd moves on to another fold. But not so here. This elect lady and her children were holding fast to that which they had been taught, and they were maintaining a strong testimony for the Lord Jesus Christ. It is interesting to note here the absence of a husband, leading us to surmise that perhaps he may have been taken away by death, thereby leaving this lady to manage her household by herself and to teach and to train her children also by herself. So much more admirable is her household for such a feat and consequently a great cause for rejoicing by the Apostle John. In the next two verses, verses 5 and 6, we see the elders' counsel, and so I've entitled this third point, The Apostles' Advice. And now I beseech thee, lady, not as though I wrote a new commandment unto thee, but that which we had from the beginning, that we love one another, and this is love, that we walk after his commandments. This is the commandment that, as ye have heard from the beginning, 
you should walk in it. After acknowledging her faithful walk, he implores her to love. He beseeches her rather than commands her. That is, he implores her, he begs her. His humility and gracious spirit is most pleasantly manifested in this little verse. True disciples of God always speak the Lord's words. They love his word. They never invent or manufacture new doctrines, new ideas, new versions. That only comes from the flesh and from false teachers who are deceived by demoniac, demoniac uh, principalities and powers and the great adversary himself. The Apostle Paul also warns the church about such things in 1 Timothy 4, 1-2. Now the Spirit speaketh expressly that in the latter times some shall depart from the faith, giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of devils, speaking lies and hypocrisy, having their conscience seared with a hot iron. As soon as a child of God abandons the word of God for other sources of truth is when error and heresies creep in and then confuse the flock, causing them to depart from God's will. Such has been happening to the churches today. So many divisions, so many groups, so many Contrary doctrines and teachings, and why? Because the adversary is hard at work, and the old sin nature is also making itself known through self, which prefers to lead rather than to submit. Self prefers to exalt man himself rather than the man Christ Jesus. Listen to the words of the Apostle Paul in 2 Timothy 4, 1-5. I charge thee therefore before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall judge the quick and the dead at his appearing and his kingdom. Preach the word, be instant in season, out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with all longsuffering and doctrine. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but after their own lusts shall they heap to themselves teachers having itching ears. And they shall turn away their ears from the truth and shall be turned unto fables. But watch thou in all things, endure afflictions, do the work of an evangelist, make full proof, of thy ministry. Are we in that day now? Are people turning away from the truth, from sound doctrine? Yes, we are, and we have been for centuries. But never before have we personally witnessed such a springing up of new religions, cults, and false spiritual teachings worldwide as we see today. And never before have we had such confusion on basic biblical doctrines in the churches as we do today. 
and it is quickly getting worse, all in preparation for the manifestation of the Antichrist, who is soon to come. And yet we marvel, don't we, that with all of those clear-cut warnings from Scripture about the apostasy that should come, Christians everywhere seem to be accepting false doctrines and practices without so much as batting an eyelid. Where has the Berean attitude gone to search the scriptures daily to see whether these things be so? And as we come back to verse 7 in 2 John, we see the reason why John wrote this letter to the elect lady. It was in response to a question which she may have had about how we as Christians should respond to those who claim to be Christians or Christian teachers, but do not teach biblical doctrines. How should we treat them? To what extent is our hospitality to be shown them? What are our obligations to them? Now, false teachers were already infiltrating the church at alarming rate. Don't forget that all of the great apostles were already martyred. Peter, James, John, Paul, not John, uh, Paul. And John was the last of the living apostles. Can you possibly imagine the terrible situation he found himself in? So much work still to do, and yet so few were left to do it, and the wolves in sheep's clothing were rapidly increasing, subtly leading the flock astray, denying the Lord that bought them. But thanks be to God, a Christian is always a majority with God. And so in verse 7, the apostle begins his description of false teachers, which brings us to our next point the apostates. For many deceivers are entered into the world who confess not that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh. This is a deceiver and an antichrist. Verse 9. Whosoever transgresseth and abideth not in the doctrine of Christ hath not God. He that abideth in the doctrine of Christ, he hath both the Father and the Son. Notice, please, the first point which the Apostle John warns about. There are many deceivers who have entered the world and they do not confess, confirm, or acknowledge or believe that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh. Not only have they entered into the world, but they have infiltrated the churches. In short, they do not believe in the historical biblical account of Jesus Christ. They do not know the true living God. It is therefore impossible for them to comprehend spiritually these vital truths concerning Christ, which are inseparable from the gospel of salvation. Jesus Christ, who was born in Bethlehem to Mary and Joseph, was none other than Jehovah God of the Old Testament, who was and is God Almighty. He is God who became manifest in the flesh. God became man, perfectly God, 
and now perfectly man united at the same time. He was conceived of the Holy Spirit. He had no literal earthly father. God was his father from eternity past and will continue to be his father in eternity future. Mary was a virgin. She knew no man sexually before Jesus was born. It was in actual fact a supernatural birth. There was never such a birth before it, and there shall never be such a birth after it. He who denies the testimony of scriptures themselves denies the one who spoke its truth, God himself. The Jesus Christ of the Bible is unique, holy, sinless, righteous. He is the exact image of God the Father, sent by the Father to this earth for the sole purpose of dying for the sins of the whole world and to destroy the works of the devil. Jesus, our Savior, went to the cross of Calvary willingly and with a purpose to offer up himself as the only acceptable and sinless sacrifice possible for the sins of mankind. That he was crucified by sinful hands is an undeniable fact of Scripture. Luke 23, 33-34 says, And when they were come to the place, which is called Calvary, there they crucified him and the malefactors, one on the right hand, the other on the left. Then said Jesus, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they parted his raiment and cast lots. Then while our Savior hung on that cruel cross, bleeding and in unimaginable pain and suffering, God the Father then heaped upon him our just punishment. That is why darkness fell upon the whole earth in the middle of the day that awful Wednesday. That is why Jesus Christ called out, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Mark 15, 34. Isaiah 53.10 gives us more insight into this horrifying scene. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He hath put him to grief. When thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed, he shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. During those three horrifying hours of darkness, God the Father turned his back on his beloved Son as he bore the sins of the whole world in his sinless body and took our punishment for those sins. And for the first time since eternity passed, the Son experienced separation from God the Father because of our sins. Is it any wonder why he cried out, My God, my God, hast thou forsaken me. Those who deny such vital doctrines, says John, those who abide not in the doctrine of Christ do not have God. They are false teachers. They are phonies. They are deceivers. They have the spirit of Antichrist. What then was this elect lady to do if she suspected such had arrived on the scene. 
This then takes us to our fifth and final point, which I've entitled The Apostles' Answer, verses 8, 9, and 10. Look to yourselves, writes John, that we lose not those things which we have wrought, but that we receive a full reward. If there come any unto you and bring not this doctrine, receive him not into your house, neither bid him Godspeed. For he that biddeth him Godspeed is partaker of his evil deeds. I would like for us to notice that there are only four commandments given in this entire epistle of Second John, and that three of them are found in this portion, verses 8 and 10. The first commandment is found in verse 5. And now I beseech thee, lady, that we love one another. John reminds her of our Lord's command to be uh, willing to love one another. In John fifteen twelve. This is my commandment, that ye love one another as I have loved you. And something that we as Christians often forget, the Lord goes on to explain the type of love which the Lord expects from each of us for one another. Verse 13. Greater love hath no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. Do we have that kind of love for one another? Do we want that kind of love one for another? Have we ever prayed for the love of Christ to be manifest in us towards others? Yet this is the kind of love we are talking about here. Self-denying, sacrificial love, demanding nothing beforehand, unconditional. This is the same kind of love that keeps a family together, where the husband and the wife love each other. This is the same kind of love that the missionary has for the lost souls for whom he or she gives his or her life. This is the same type of love that the apostles had for the Savior for whom most of them were martyred. John says, remember, remember the Savior's commandment. I beseech you, I beg you, let us love one another that way. That then will be the distinguishing feature of our truly belonging to Christ. But the other three commandments are found in verses 8 and 10. And the first of these three is in verse 8. Look to yourselves that we lose not those things which we have wrought, but that we receive a full reward. The Apostle John cautions the elect lady to be careful. Watch out for yourself and your family. Don't do anything that may cause you to lose your rewards down at the end of the road. The Lord rewards his people for faithful service to him. But at the same time, there is a great danger of losing one's reward someday because of what we failed to do afterwards or what we do do afterwards that is not according to the Spirit of God. 
And by implication here, if we get entangled with false teachers, with false worship and service, we could lose everything someday that we once earned in the way of rewards in heaven. Our salvation, of course, is not in question. We can never lose that since we never earned it to begin with. But our faithful service is at stake if we are not careful. If there come any unto you and bring not this doctrine, that is the correct doctrine of who Christ is and what he did, receive him not into your house, neither bid him Godspeed. And this is his answer. Don't accept him as a Christian minister or a Christian brother and try to fellowship with him. For such are deniers of the faith and also destroyers of the soul. And don't acknowledge their ministry. Don't support them spiritually, no matter how nice and friendly they may be. Because if you do, you are contributing to the misleading of countless souls and you are working against the building up of the church. So don't even bid them Godspeed or else you will be guilty and a partaker of his evil deeds. And dearly beloved, this should speak to all of us this morning. For he that biddeth him Godspeed is partaker of his deeds. Have you ever wondered how we as Christians could become partakers of their evil deeds? There are many ways that this can happen. One way is through fear. Fear of saying anything in case you get into trouble. Therefore, your silence makes you guilty. Then there is apathy, the not caring attitude. Oh, let somebody else do it. I'm too tired to always defend or always debate or always uh, contend for the faith. Then there is public involvement, either financially or physically, without ever having examined the doctrinal issues behind these organizations. Later, when we wake up and discover one day their secret agenda, it is too late. The damage has already been done. Now, lest I leave some doubt here, I should add this. The apostle is not talking about Christians who may have some differences or errors in their teaching. He is talking about those who claim to be Christian teachers, but have not received the Christ of the Bible. They may very well be close to what we believe, but they still fall short of the mark on who the real Christ is. Relevant examples today would be those from any of the well-known cults who call themselves Christians, such as the Jehovah's Witnesses, who claim that Jesus Christ is a God. He was created. He is Michael the Archangel. That is blasphemy. Believing that will never get one saved. Or the Mormons, who teach that their Jesus Christ is the brother of Lucifer, 
He too is a created being. And that Jesus will never get you saved. Or the Christadelphians who teach that there is no such thing as hell. Or Scientology who teach mind over matter, Christian science. Or the biggest cult of all times, the Roman Catholic Church, who has a very weak Jesus, who needs to sacrifice himself every Sunday, every Mass, hundreds and thousands of times each Sunday, everywhere on the face of this earth. And he needs Mary as his co-redeemer. No one can get saved by believing in such a Jesus. These, says the Apostle John, do not have the doctrine of Christ and therefore are deceivers and have the spirit of the Antichrist. And finally, the Apostle John concludes his letter with these words. Having many things to write unto you, I would not write with paper and ink, but I trust to come unto you and speak face to face, that our joy may be full. The children of thy elect sister greet thee. Amen. A short epistle, but a clear caution to all of us today who are believers in Jesus Christ. We cannot worship with or have fellowship with anyone who does not confess that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh. Because, says the scriptures, this is a deceiver and an antichrist. Now, these may seem like harsh words to some, and some may even be upset by such teaching. But, dearly beloved, remember that hell is a very harsh place. And if we have the wrong Jesus, the wrong gospel, and the wrong spirit, then the end result will be hell for all eternity. Remember Calvary. Remember our Savior's suffering. He died in our place for our sins, and he expects us to preach it exactly the way it happened, so that whosoever believeth on him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Let's pray. Father, we thank thee for this precious epistle of Second John. And we must confess, if we're honest, that often we do not read these letters as carefully and as often as we ought. But the message is sure, and the message is clear. And the message was put there because of the love of God to warn us. And so, Father, we pray that each of us this morning might re-examine ourselves daily to see whether we be in the faith whether we have believed in the Christ of the Bible or in the Christ that we have created in our own image. Father, we thank thee that we have the privilege each Lord's Day to come together around his table to remember him and his sacrifice for us so that we do not forget that we were bought with a price and that we were bought to serve, to serve him. Part us now with thy blessings, we pray, and if the Lord be not come, may it please thee once again 
to bring us together around his table next Lord's Day. For we ask it all in his name and for his glory. Amen. Thank you.